2: Welcome to the show. It's Wednesday. I thought the introduction wasn't over yet. That's why I delayed okay. just a minute. Hey, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand on for Life A program, as you know, dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. We've got a variety of questions that have been sent in covering all of that stuff. But whatever is on your heart, you need only to call us, 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at com, Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we've got a lot going on. It's uh, Wednesday, so that means I'm going to be teaching tonight uh out of the Old Testament 2 Kings uh the end of chapter 6 and all through uh Kings chapter uh, 2 Kings chapter 7 okay let's get to some questions that have been sent in and uh we will uh, go from there first one is from Janice from our email inbox uh hi pastor on in the book of Matthew it mentions that the devil took Jesus twice what does that mean? Did Jesus walk with the devil? In movies, the scene or background will change, but what does it mean in the Bible? Um, Genesis, it does not mean at all that, that the devil was in control or that Jesus just decided to hang out with him. When we look at the stories, and there's um, um, the story is repeated in other Gospels, uh, the first verse of, of Matthew chapter 4 says Jesus was led by the Spirit, into the desert or the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this was a move of God. This was the very first thing of his public ministry. You remember he had just been baptized uh, by John the Baptist. And when he was coming up out of the water, the spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. And uh, it's always interesting to me because the very first thing Jesus had to encounter was a test. 40 days without food and water. And then the devil came to him. But this was led of the Spirit. Now, we have a tendency to think that, that, that if we're really walking with the Holy Spirit, then um, bad things won't happen to us. No, this was a test designed by God. Jesus simply submitted to it. So when it says the devil took him in verse 5 to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, it's not like Jesus and the devil are just sort of hanging out. This is all a test, and Jesus knows it. Uh, In verse 8, it says, and this is the second time you're talking about, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. So this was just part of the test that Jesus was going through. It is required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful and even the Son of God. Because he was a man, 100% human and 100% God, he was not impervious to that test. So he was simply submitting to the test and as he was tempted directly by the devil at his weakest point, um, it's at that that moment that God submitted or Jesus submitted to his father's will and passed every test. The the devil would, would, uh, if you are the son of God, if you're hungry, um, those kind of things, And, and Jesus responded all three times it is written. So this isn't isn't just Jesus and the devil hanging out. This was a test ordained by God. Uh, the Bible says that he was tempted or tested. The words are interchangeable uh, in Greek. Uh, in all ways as we are. And in this particular case, Janice, he was tempted by the devil to a far greater degree than anything that you and I will ever have to encounter. So uh, this was him doing what we do every day, but doing it to a far greater degree. So I hope that makes sense. It's not that Jesus was not in control or that God the Father was not in control. This was a test that was engineered by God himself. Good question. Here is a tough one from Mark from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. Can you explain what I deem sounds contradictory? You have mentioned that when you got saved, you had to reassure your wife for a year uh, on that you wouldn't go back to who you were. Um, But you've also said that A man or woman who continues to wallow in their circumstances needing to get over themselves. My wife and I can have a minor conflict. We'll pray and ask for forgiveness. But then she will wallow in her misery for days, if not a week. The tension and attitude is terrible. I tell her, why do you continue wallowing in your misery? Her response is, that's okay. Pastor Ron would reassure his wife for over a year. My rebuttal is that when we ask for forgiveness and pray, we have to let it go. Um my marriage is so difficult when my wife has a victim mentality. So often, please elaborate. Thank you, Pastor Ron. We love you, Mark. These are these are always hard things, but but trust lost has to be re- regained. Now I don't know. Obviously, I don't know the situation between your and wife, and and what she's holding on to, but um, we have to understand. And and I, I think maybe you guys heard something I didn't say. Uh, I didn't say that I had to reassure my wife for a year. I said she didn't believe for a year that my my change, the transformation, was real. She was waiting for the other shoe to, got, uh, to drop. So it's not like I was saying, come on, Paula, please believe me. It wasn't that at all. Uh, I just continued to live my life uh, putting Jesus first, serving God, uh, changing the way that I was treating her. And um, it wasn't like I was trying to prove myself to her. Uh, there were times when I would get a little whiny about it. I, she should trust me by now. But but the reality was, and Mark, I had to deal with this. I had to deal with the fact that I deserved every bit of that mistrust. I earned it. And, um, you know, as, as much as we'd like to say, okay, now we're mature Christians, we can just forgive and forget and move on, uh, we're imperfect humans and Paula had been hurt so deeply by me that she was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, and, and basically, this was her way of protecting her heart. Now, I suspect, Mark, that that's what your wife is doing. She's protecting her heart. And the one thing that you can't do is accuse her or, or demand that she just, just forget about it. Um, you worry about your walk. You forget about it. And and when life is difficult, when she's, uh, in your words, um, suffering from a victim mentality, um, reassure her. Reassure her. Uh, Again, I don't know your circumstance, but if if you've earned her mistrust in the past, then what you need to do is humble yourself and say, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I lost a fortune gambling. I mean, literally a fortune and um, um, when I was saved, Paula, one day, she did something with money that I didn't think was the right thing to do. And, and, and in frustration, I said to her, um, I can't believe you did that with our money. We were running out. I mean, we were running out quickly. And, and every dollar was very precious. And she did something that I thought was was um inappropriate with the money. I don't mean it was bad or wrong or anything uh in fact, she was being generous, and I just said my, my point was, well, we can't afford that type thing and I said, "I can't believe you that with money and she looked at me and she said, "After all the money you lost, you're going to talk to me about money and instantly, I was so convicted, and I told her, "I'm so sorry, I deserved that." And see, it's behavior like that, Mark, that's going to convince your wife that you, in Christ, are a different man. And whatever the source of her insecurities are, I don't know, but I'm sure you and your wife, you can you can talk about it. But But your job isn't to change her. You've got to let the Holy Spirit do that. Your job is to just focus on your walk with Jesus. And be patient, bearing with one another, bearing with your wife, and understanding that your wife is probably, both in good things and bad things, a reflection of your leadership. Now, this email, Mark, sounds like you're impatient. I was impatient with Paula, but how could I be impatient when she prayed for me for 13 years? So, again, I wasn't reassuring her. You can tell your wife that. I wasn't reassuring her. I was simply living my life with Jesus. And the change in me was so obvious that she had to deal with it. But see, it was God that dealt with her. And at the end of all of this, and when I say year, it was almost exactly a year um, the Lord spoke to her one day she was she was in that vulnerable place again, and wondering if it's if if I'm going to revert to be the the same kind of jerk I always was, and because she was afraid that would crush her heart, it's like i I can't stand to be hurt deeply one more time. um The Lord spoke to her, and he said, "You've prayed for a godly man. I've given you a godly man, and you've been watching him every day for a year." Isn't it about time you let go and became vulnerable and trusted me? And and really, Mark, from that point forward, we've never had a problem with trust. So very important. This You can't fix her. God will. What you can do is let your light shine. But being impatient with her. Um, one other comment about about the victim mentality, people that and this isn't just women, men and women, both have it. This is so destructive to to our walk with the Lord and something that the devil will exploit over and over and over and over. So it's got to be dealt with. The best place to deal with this is um, in your Bible studies when you're when you're when you're reading to your wife or she's reading to you. And I really counsel people to do it both ways. Uh, Paula reads to me because I can't see, but but um, it, it, just just getting more senses involved. Um, you read it out loud to her. Let her take it and read it back to you, and then you can talk about these things. And I promise you, in reading the New Testament together, you're going to have so many opportunities to talk about getting rid of what you call the victim mentality. The old is gone. The new has come. Um, Paul says, uh, uh, "Sin is no longer my master. I won't be controlled by anything." And this gives you an opportunity, led by the Holy Spirit, to talk about these things. And Mark, these are these are issues that need to be resolved. These are issues that need to be resolved as husbands. Not only are we to set the example. But remember, we're the spiritual head of our house, so if your wife is holding on to things from the past, then what she needs to do is hear you say to her, look, sweetheart, I love you. I love you, but as a believer, we've got to decide whether or not we really trust the promises in the Bible. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? There is no condemnation for those who who are in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. There's so many wonderful promises. And when you're dealing with issues like the ones in your home, it's so easy to say, let's pray about this now. Let's decide that we're really going to believe it. And then the next time you start to feel this way, then the Holy Spirit will correct you. And you won't be bound any longer. You're going to walk in the freedom. And these have to be loving, patient conversations led by the Spirit. And there's no better time than when you're reading the Bible together. So, Mark, thank you for the question. I'll be praying for you guys. But uh, remember, patience matters a great deal. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Rick from our email inbox. Hi, uh, Pastor Ron. This past Sunday, you spoke about praying for yourself. Too many times as Christians, we pray for ourselves and miseries. Uh, I also heard you say for us to stop praying for ourselves and pray for others. Uh, when are we supposed to pray for ourselves and pray for others? How are we supposed to pray for ourselves and others? Um, let me say, Rick, at first, the the, the, the most important element in prayer is praying from a grateful heart. With thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Now, I did not, uh, I, I mean, I pray for myself. Uh, there, there are things going on in my life or things that are going on um, um, that I need to deal with in my heart. And, and so I pray for myself. Um, but, but my prayers, and this is the point I was trying to make Sunday. Um, my prayers are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly more for other people. Than for myself, uh, I can pray for other people, and I can thank God for them. I can ask I ask His blessings on the people, and the more I pray for them, the less concerned I am about my stuff. So uh, we can pray um, um, you know if if you've got physical issues, um, um, financial issues, of course we pray for those things. but priority. Has to be getting our focus off us. That's when I when I said we got to get over ourselves. That's what I meant. Um, we we've 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 got to prioritize praying for others uh, because that sets our mind and our heart on things above. Because others are the the ones that Jesus is concerned about, and He wants to use us to intercede on their behalf. Now, as a pastor, I have tons and tons of people to pray for, and. Um, I like the fact that my focus is on ministering for them and to them rather than to myself. It reminds me how grateful to God I am, not only for the things that he's blessed me with, but how grateful I am for the people that he's given me. And when you're praying for other people and their their pain, um, God deposits them in a deeper place in your heart. So Always you can pray for yourself. Just don't pray for yourself as much as you pray for others. And remember, when we pray for ourselves, we pray with a grateful heart. And I said on Sunday's message, we ought to be able to to end every prayer the way Jesus ended his prayer in the garden. Thy will, not my will be done. So when I'm praying for me, uh, there's a bunch of things that I want. We, we, we're we looking at a building to buy and I want it desperately and I think we need it desperately. And it, it'd be easy to, to say, Jesus, we need it so bad. Uh, but, but rather say, Lord, according to thy will. I want it to be your will, but according to thy will. If it's not of you, Lord, I don't want it. And and that's typically how I pray for myself. So uh, that's why we need to talk with the Lord all day long because these Prayers for other people and the prayers for yourself—you um, know—it takes some time, it takes some investment. So that's the way we pray for ourselves: um, focus on Him, worshiping Him, being grateful to Him, and then pray for other people. And don't lecture God or inform God uh, about about w- what your prayers mean. Just, just, just pray. Lord, you know these people are really hurting. It doesn't matter why. They're really hurting. Lord, would you comfort them? Would you draw them closer to you? And Rick, that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul does. Read the, the list of the people that he prays for constantly uh, through his epistles, especially the greetings and the, the, the ending of, of each of the epistles. I mean, his prayer list was enormous. And he had a lot of time traveling from one place to another, and he utilized that time praying for other people. That's really, really important. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to uh, line one, Lucy from Universal City. Lucy, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well, Lucy. Thank you.
3: Good, good. I was having... um a little soda at uh, a local shop today and with two other ladies from our church. And we came up with some questions for you. Um, uh, Is it okay if I ask you two questions? Sure. Um, Okay, the first one is, the Bible says that we should cry unto the Lord. But we know that it's not the kind of crying like Kids do in the store. I want it. I want it. I want it. Um, so, what kind of crying is God talking about? And are there different kinds of cries
2: So that yeah, you know, before before you, b- Lucy, before you go to the second second question, that you made it sound like you're kind of an expert in that kind of crying to the Lord.
3: We all are, Pastor Ron. I admit yeah. it. Like in a basketball <laughs> game, I lift my hand up when I made it, my, when I make a mistake. <laughs>
2: yeah, okay. What's question number two?
3: Question number two is: Do Christians know when they are being used by the enemy to do anything that interrupts? Someone
2: else's walk. Well, that is a great question, Lucy. Let me take, let me take the question. The first one will be really quick. Um, we cry out to the Lord. Um, we we just cry from a heart that has been surrendered to the Lord. So whatever is in your heart, cry out. And the idea there isn't crying as you suggested, um, although there's times when you're going to be crying as well. But you cry out to the Lord. Um, with, with a genuine, sincere heart uh, for the people or the things that you're praying for. Uh, cry out to the Lord so that the result of your prayer will be for his glory. Cry out to the Lord so that um, uh, he knows that you have his heart for the people that you're praying for. And it's just a, it's just a, a very Jewish way of saying we cry out to the Lord um, with a heart that's committed to him. um, um We humble ourselves. We know that God hears our prayers. If we ask according to his will, we know he hears it, and we know that we have what we ask for. Those are the kind of prayers when we're crying out. Uh, My crying out to the Lord is almost exclusively on behalf of other people, almost exclusively. I I, I deal with people that have so much pain in their lives. You know, Lucy, that we pray for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused, the fearful, and the angry. We pray for them, them constantly. And, and I just know so many of those people who are getting ripped off uh, in their, their, their walk with the Lord that um, um, my heart physically and, and emotionally hurts for them. And so I'm crying out to them. And those are the kind of, of cries that we have for the Lord. Second question is, do people know when they're being used by the enemy? Uh, Lucy, the, the answer to that question is that we should know. Because whenever we're judging somebody, whenever we're looking at their life instead of looking at our own life, our own hearts, uh, we should know that the enemy's going to use that. You know, we want to tell people how to live their lives. We want to, to um, uh, have people um, uh, think the same way we think. We get frustrated and patient. The devil is going to use every opening and every opportunity that we give him uh, in order to do that. But yeah, um, um, we should know that. The problem, of course, is that most of us aren't genuinely seeking a discernment at that point. and And it demonstrates that, that the the prayers of our heart for other people really aren't for them as much as they are for us. And um, the enemy is going to use anything and everything and everyone that he possibly can. And if he catches you in a place where you're uh, looking at somebody else's behavior. Jesus said um, that there's a, a speck in somebody else's eye. That may be true, but before you can go speck hunting, you got to take the big old beam out of your eye. If we go looking around at other people's lives with that beam in our lives, Jesus is going to see it. So is the devil going to see it? And what we've got to do is is get rid of our own beams and check our own hearts. That's why Paul said to examine ourselves daily. But uh, we, we're we're kind of oblivious most of the time to the schemes of the devil. We've had questions recently this this week about marriage. You know, when our marriages aren't right, when we're impatient with people, then the devil is going to use that as well. And he's going to be pushing buttons and he happens to be an expert button pusher. So Lucy, great question. Thank you for that. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven kslr We'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to our final 30 minutes of the Wednesday show. We'd love your calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Mary. From our email inbox. Um, Hi, Pastor Ron. How old was Jesus when the Magi visited him? Some people say weeks, months, or two years. Is there anything we can apply with the Magis visiting Jesus? And why did the Magi visit Jesus? Well, the Magi, these were, were um, we'd call them star scientists, uh, astronomers. Not astrologers, astronomers, and and these were these were smart people, um, and uh, the magi visited them, of course, um, because they were seeking God. If you seek me, uh, you will find me. The Bible tells us a couple of things. The reason that um, we think Jesus was a baby, uh, just weeks old, is because we've seen in our our Christmas decorations uh, from the time we were born, little baby Jesus in the manger and our Christmas plays and things, Uh, and the the wise men visiting him. Uh, But uh, it is probably, Mary, more likely that Jesus was um, closer to two years old than he was uh, being a baby. We don't know for sure because we're not told. What we do know is that when the Magi went uh, to Herod, Uh, Herod demanded, well, well, when did you see this star? And um, they saw the star appear that that began the journey. Remember, trips took a long time in the ancient world by camel. And um, uh, they saw the star, and the star appeared to them two years ago. That's why Herod ordered all of the male children two, two years of age and under murdered. So we don't know for sure. There's no way of telling, and nobody knows. But it is more likely that he was closer to two years old than he was uh, weeks or months old. So, Mary, I hope that makes sense. I wish that we could be more exact. But the reality is we simply don't know. Here is a question from Pauline. She says, Pastor, will you share your testimony how you became a Christian? Pauline, I'll give you the, the, the quick version of it. I don't want to take uh, time um, on the program But um, um, I became a Christian uh, out of desperation. Um, Paula was praying for me, as I've shared the story many times, uh, for 13 years. And um, I had to lose everything. I had to be absolutely desperate, no place else to turn. I was so uh, filled with pride. Um, You know, I had to be the captain of my own ship. It turns out it was the Titanic But that's just just the male ego and my pride. And I got myself into trouble that I couldn't get out of. And I was going to run away from it, Pauline. And um, that's exactly what I did. The the blessing is that Jesus didn't let me get very far. I was literally running away from home. I only got about a block and a half away. and, And literally, I was apprehended by the Lord. I fell on a public street and cried out for Paul as Jesus I wasn't raised in church, so I didn't know really anything about Jesus other than what Paula had told me. And um, the reality was that, that I knew her Jesus was real. And when my life became so desperate, I gave my heart to Jesus right there on that public street. And Pauline, when I got saved, it was radical. I mean, instantly it was like all the pressure in the world was relieved from my shoulders. Um, I I knew two things. Again, I didn't know anything about Jesus other than uh, what Paula had shared, and I I didn't let her share very much. Uh, But I knew two things for sure. I couldn't have explained them, but I knew them. I knew, one, that I was going to heaven. Um, I never had any interest in heaven before. I didn't care about anything uh, regarding heaven, didn't know whether I believed or didn't believe. That wasn't the issue. It just wasn't uh, a part of my thought process. But I knew I was going to heaven. Now, I didn't know why he would want me in heaven. I mean, I was so ashamed of my life. But I knew that I was going to heaven. And I have not had a moment's doubt about uh, my, my eternal security from that point forward. The second thing I knew was that if this man, Jesus, had the authority to forgive me of my sins, then he now was the authority in my life. And I knew that he would, would take precedence, priority, over anything, everything, and everyone in my life from that day forward. And and he really did. And in the process, just submitting to his authority and trusting him, um, really, Pauline, has changed my life. So um, my life fell apart. Jesus put it back together. And what he has done uh, with my life. Yeah, elect or chosen or predestined, the King James uses, um, the elect are just the people that God knew were going to be saved, that were going to be saved. Um, Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, he also uh, predestined. In other words, um, before I got saved, God knew that I was going to be saved. And no matter what I did, no matter how I lived my life, I couldn't change his mind because he knew First Peter chapter one, verses one and two: the elect of God according to the foreknowledge of God. It's no more difficult than that, Tony. And and I know Calvinists will try to make it way different. Oh no, it's much more um, um, uh, difficult than that. It's you've got to really dig deep. No, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So, if you are a believer, you were chosen before the foundations of the world. Uh, if you're not yet a believer, the way to find out if you were chosen before the foundation of the world is to ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins and take over your life. And then you're going to find that you were elect. My pastor, uh, Pastor Chuck, the founder of Calvary Chapel, used to say, you know, when he goes through those gates at heaven, and this is a metaphor, of course, as we go through those gates, it's going to say, enter of your own free will on one side, then you're going to get back, and you're going to look at the other side and say, chosen by God. So there's no tension between our free will and God's choice of us. He simply knows, Tony, what we're going to do, the choices we're going to make. And uh, again, in my case, um, as as horribly as I lived my life. God set his love, and this is why Romans eight twenty nine is so special to me. God set his love upon me and, and nothing, no one, not even my behavior could change his mind. Why? Because I was chosen by God and I was secure in that choice even when I didn't understand anything about his choice. I know now what I didn't know then, but I was just as chosen then as I am now. So that's really important. It's not as though God chooses some for heaven and some for hell.
3: The
2: the idea of election, Tony, uh, throughout the Bible, is never used in any other construct except regarding salvation. And we, you know, using this linear logical that that we have, well, if God chooses some for heaven, he has to choose some for hell, and God is sovereign, you can't, uh, can't question God. That's never a biblical concept. So God chooses us because he knows we're going to choose him back, and God is faithful to bring us all to that point where we surrender our hearts. So Tony, I hope that makes sense to you. It's uh, an important question to settle. One other comment regarding election. You know, it was one of those doctrines that, as a brand new believer, I really, really had to wrestle with, because I would read what other people say, and it would make it so complicated. And and I just I remember crying out, God, I don't really understand this. And those two passages, Romans eight twenty nine. Romans 829 and first Peter 1, one and two um, are so clear and to make it any more complicated than that is to trip uh, over our own ego, God didn't choose you because you were special. you were special because he chose you. That makes sense I hope. Good question. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, in one place, Jesus says to do good works in private. And another, he says, to let our light shine before men. Is that a contradiction? Um, anonymous, no, it's not a contradiction. In fact, he doesn't say to do our good works in private. He says, uh, don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We do things just in the counsel of God. But but we're supposed to do good works. We're supposed to, to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said, if we abide in him, he will abide in us. And then the the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Uh, all of those, the, those attributes are going to be visible for everybody to see. And that's what he wants to see in that Matthew passage where he says to let our light shine before men. Uh, he also says no one lights a, a candle or a light and then puts it under a bushel to conceal the light. He said, no, a light is given to, 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 to lighten the whole house. And that's what we are. We're God's lights in this world. So we do our good works. We serve. We love people, we forgive people, we we demonstrate the fruits of the spirit so that other people can see that the God that we love and the God that we serve really is God. You know so much pain is in this world and people, you know we can become pretty good at at, at disguising our pain, but there's so much pain and so much emptiness. And when that kind of a person sees somebody like I hope you anonymous and I hope me when they see us uh, living a life that is content living a life that's filled with joy believe me that is a good work a light that is shining brightly and and that, then it brings honor and glory to God because others can see it um, so um, yeah our, our good works are supposed to be done we're not to take credit for them um, every good and perfect gift comes from above, the Father of Light. But um, we do those works wherever we are, and people will see. So no contradiction at all, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. We do get disappointed in the way things are. And and that's why so many Christians have put their hopes in a political party or in a political candidate Um, You know, we've stopped looking to Jesus and and started looking for a kingdom that isn't of God, but a kingdom of God on the earth. You know, we're a Christian nation and we need to vote Christian principles. And while that's true, not the Christian nation part, but the voting Christian principles part is true, um, the the reality is the world's not going to get any better if your political candidate wins. I want everybody in this audience to remember that. As we draw nearer to the election cycle, because frankly, in the last election cycle, when we changed presidents, um, Christians Christians were a huge embarrassment to our Christ. We divided, we called people names, we unfriended them, we spoke ill of them, uh, just because they had a different political perspective than we do. And And, you know, the Bible says, without love, we're all just making noise. And frankly, we embarrass the Lord. So here's what we need to do. Don't put your hope in a candidate or in a party. Don't think that we get this person elected over this person, that suddenly the world is going to be great again. Now, we should vote. And and certainly there are some candidates are going to be better than others. But the problems don't go away. And when our last president was in office, uh, that should should have been proof to every believer who thought that he's God's man. No, he was a sinner. He needs Jesus. And our job is to tell people about, about the Lord. Good question. Here's a question interesting. I've not had this one before. This one is from Tracy. When I say I haven't had a question before, uh, that's unusual. Uh, Tracy says, uh, I'm an ex Catholic but still like to pray the Rosary. Is that okay? Um, Tracy, you're an ex Catholic. Leave that behind and move on. It's not okay to pray the Rosary. Jesus said, don't just make repetitious prayers. You're praying in vain. Um, your walk with Jesus as an ex Catholic is no longer based on a religion or a church, or a church that mediates between you and God. Your relationship is based on a a God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you, and then he loved you so much, and when Jesus died, he sent his spirit to live in you. And he wants you to talk to him according to his will. He wants you to get into the word. And Tracy, I'm just making a guess here, not accusing you of anything, but, but I'm betting you're not in the Bible very much. Because it's impossible to be a student of your Bible and pray the rosary. So no, it's not okay. It's an indication that your walk with the Lord. And I'm, I'm grateful to God that you're saved. Uh, I'm grateful that, that, that you're going to be in heaven. But um, it's time to grow up in your faith. Learn why you believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, here's a question from Hector. And I'm hearing some buzz in the background. I guess we're having some technical issues. I hope that's okay. Uh, Hector says, does Isaiah 53 promise physical healing in the atonement? Hector, no. No, 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 no. It doesn't. Um, I hear people say, well, it doesn't promise it, but it doesn't exclude it. It includes it. No. No. Isaiah 53 has nothing to do with our physical ailments. We automatically assume, because we're, again, immature in our approach to the Bible, by his stripes we are healed, and and we want to believe that includes physical healing. It has nothing to do with it. Matthew's Gospel makes it clear that the, the, the illness that we're healed of is the illness of sin. So no, Isaiah 53 says nothing about physical healing. Um... You know, we like to name it and claim it, but again, Christians, we've got to open our Bibles, we've got to study them, and we want to know exactly what we're being promised. The promises of God are so glorious; we don't have to invent the promises. But we're not promised. I was out running one day, and I'm gonna. This will be my last question because we're we're running down in time. But I was out one day doing my exercises, and uh, um, a lady that uh, I'd seen for a long, long time. Um, she saw me uh, out there, and we had a little conversation. Uh, and she said, I, and, "And this was about the time I was going through my heart things." And she said, uh, um, "You know, God doesn't want your heart to be be bad. He wants you to be fixed. All you got to do is have faith." And and you know, I'm a pastor. I'm not exercising. I'm not in a Bible study environment. But but I just told her, I said, you don't really believe that, do you? She goes, yes, I do. And I claim my healing all the time. And and she said, you know, um, even though my healing hasn't manifested itself yet, I claim it and I'm healed. And that's just nonsense. That's just bad teaching. It's poor doctrine. And uh, Hector, um, God has done so much in the atonement for us. Uh, How dare we be disappointed that physical healing is not one of those things. Now, having said that, people say, well, you don't believe God still heals? Yeah, he does, sometimes. But if we're all honest and we're objective, there are myriads more times where God doesn't heal than he does. So when God chooses to heal somebody, it's his sovereign choice, it's his gift of healing given to somebody, uh, it's it's his love being manifest, uh, and it's a great thing, and we should rejoice. But to expect that God owes us to be healed is to misunderstand uh, the atonement altogether. So, Hector, I hope that makes sense to you. Physical healing is not promised at all. Um, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the show. We'd love to have your calls and questions. Uh, tonight I am going to be teaching from 2 Kings chapter 6, I believe. I'm starting in verse 24 uh, all the way through the end of chapter 7. And while it's a really bleak story, man, it's an important story uh, in the life of Elisha and in the ministry of Elisha. Uh, so uh, we would invite you to tune in or to join us tonight. Um, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it more than you know. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May our Lord Jesus Christ bless you abundantly. Abide in Him and He will abide in you. When that happens, you know what will happen for you? You'll fall more in love with Jesus than you've ever been before. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 the Word. We'll see you then.